0: Welcome back, friends, to the Mark Claire Show. My guest today has already become a pretty familiar face here in, in this program's short existence. He is the proprietor of the Secret Sun blog, head professor at the Secret Sun Institute of Advanced synchro mysticism. I really love saying that word. He's the author of several books, including Our God's Wear Spandex, A Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. And he is now kind of wrapping up that superhero arc, you might say, with his latest book just released, The Spandex Files. I am very pleased to welcome back Christopher Knowles. Chris, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thank you.
0: Well, Chris, uh, you uh, last time you were on here, uh, we talked about a lot about your history in the comic book industry, how you got interested in comics. We don't need to go back into all that. I'll just I'll link to the uh, that episode in the show notes, but I kind of want to just find out more of what the impetus was for returning to the topic with this book. What did you feel need to be said that wasn't said in Our Gods Wear Spandex life, I think over a decade ago?
1: Well, yeah, it was over a decade ago. It was I wrote that book in 2006. So, kind of a lot has changed since then. <laughs> I think so. I think that's safe to say. Well, also, um, this book I wanted to concentrate more on, like the movies and such. Uh, you know, there's a huge part of the book that's looking at all superhero movies and, you know, comic book inspired movies. You know, Matrix, Dark City, mm-hmm. so on. And I wanted to. It was kind of almost like a before and after, but I also sort of want to just draw a line in the sand and say, you know, this is the end of it. This, you know, the, the phenomenon, the social and, and cultural phenomenon that I was talking about in uh, Gods Where Spandex is over. Uh, and, you know, the numbers bear that out, that uh, superhero movies, especially this past year, flopped across the board. I think the only movie that, did well was uh the guardians of the galaxy and that's the last one so it's not even that it's not even like they can go back to that well um you know the flash movie lost like you know they're saying like 200 million dollars and always add like at least 25 million dollars to these numbers you know when they say they lost 200 million dollars they lost 225 million dollars if not up i mean whatever um it it's it's over and it's inevitable you know Nothing lasts forever. You can't have that kind of cultural dominance forever. People just get tired of it. I think people got tired of the superheroes. Um, I stopped watching those movies 10 years ago. You know what I mean? I just, I just got so sick of the formula. It, it just started to feel oppressive, you know? Because all, especially when it's an origin story, they, these movies are all exactly the same. And, you know, Marvel had a nice formula. But the problem was, is that they just drove it into the ground, and then they they thought that they could take that same formula and apply it to all these second, third, fourth tier characters that have no uh, track record of success in the comics, and it didn't work out. And so we we are at the end of it. And I I do talk a lot about how um, there was the entrance of a whole generation of um, cultural studies types. Into into the industry that just kind of destroyed it, and then there were all the sort of like the DEI and ESG and CRT and all these kind of corporate um, diversity agendas. That just sucked all the life out of it. You know, people people watch those movies to get away from that shit. They don't. They don't want to go to the movies and and, and get lectured on.
0: And they're not coy about it either. I like Disney. Disney actually has some kind of behind the scenes specials uh, on its channel, and some of them will have interviews with these writers, and a lot of them will openly brag. About how the fact that they have no affinity for the comics, they haven't. Or many of them haven't read the comics, and they're proud of that fact. And they say they're there specifically to, uh, you know, give a voice to the downtrodden and, and whatnot, and you know, the, the list of twenty-seven oppressed, uh, you know, oppressed peoples and whatnot. So it's it's not it's not it's not coy or subtle whatsoever.
1: No, and um, it, it. I, I think that superheroes were going to end anyway, and I think if you mo- ask most people, they sort of saw. Um, Endgame, like that was the that was the end of it. You, you know, that was like uh Return of the King for the Lord of the Rings movies. That sort of ended the story. Where else do you go? And then they they took all these characters, like, I mean, you're a comics guy, uh, you know, Shang-Chi and uh the Eternals and She-Hulk, and all these like characters that sort of were introduced in the 70s because you know they were trying to keep the thing going because, you know, the older characters were getting kind of worn out, but those characters, they didn't, they, they weren't successful back then. They weren't successful in the comics back then. Um, you know, Shang, I mean, I was a big fan of, Shang, you know, master Kung Fu, Shang Chi, but, um, you know, I was in the minority, you know, I, that was not a successful book. Um, it had a certain cachet because the whole Kung Fu martial arts, everybody was Kung Fu fighting kind of deal. <laughs> Was popular in the seventies, but I don't know. Um, and then Marvel did all this, you know, race and gender swapping and sexuality swapping with all their main characters, and that just really—that was the 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 death stroke that killed the goose that laid the golden egg. But here's the thing: so I remember this is before you know the whole. Uh, all the diversity and DEI and all that kind of stuff became so dominant. I remember like it, it was sort of started to bubble up. There was a, a site called comics Alliance that, you know, they were getting like very woke quote unquote and comics beat. And I remember um, I, I forget which it was one of these sites and, and I commented and I said, this industry lives and dies off of like middle-aged single white men. If you alienate them, you have nothing left. that's, that's your core. Go to you know a I mean? comic shop, can, that's, that's who's there. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, you can try to expand your palette, right? But if, if you mess with those guys, you're dead in the water. And those guys were the ones keeping the stores open. And that's why we've seen, I mean, for God's sake, Jim Hanley's closed. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just, I mean, I guess Midtown Comics, I'm talking mm-hmm. about New York here, I guess Midtown Comics is still open, but it's just been a bloodbath. You know what I mean? Store after store after store is just dying. You know, the thing is that comic books are, are more popular than ever as a medium, but it's not superhero stuff. It's all manga and and YA. So um, it's, just, it's just over. And I kind of wanted to, you know, both of myself, since it was such a part of my life for so long, such a central part of my life, you know, I kind of wanted to sort of wrap it up and say goodbye. You know what I mean? But also... Kind of let everybody else know that it's it's time to say goodbye, you know? And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because we do have what, 80, 90 years of material to, to pour through. You, you know, can become everything. a comic fan today
0: and just read good stuff from the past and never, never get to the end of it.
1: Yes, exactly. And, you know, the thing, the, the metaphor I was thinking about today is like the classical music era ended at some point. You know, they're always like, classical composers singing in the early 20th century. But you know, as you're kind of like Bach and Brahms and Beethoven and, and you know all these kind of people that that was the core, Mozart. That was the core of classical music. and it's you know, or, or classic rock, right? Now, it, it doesn't mean that the work dies with it, you know? I mean, the, the, the stories that have been published so far are not going anywhere. You know, you, you, they're more easy to find today than ever before. You know what I mean? They're, they're out there, and the material is out there. And like you said, you can spend the rest of your life just reading material that's already been published. But the culture is is really, really hurting. And I think a lot of it was just, it was overexposure. You know, too many conventions, too many comical companies. Uh, just too much. And you cannot sustain that that type of intensity it's just going to end and that's kind of what i wanted to to talk about but i also wanted to talk about you know all these different movies and, and and just how this influenced the culture you know i i didn't want it to just be like doom and gloom you know i wanted to sort of celebrate the past and you know the good things about it the good things about the industry the good things about the um the medium And, and, you know, there are a lot of good things. Um, you know, I think that goes without saying, and also what I wanted to do, I mean, you're a comics guy, this might be a little before your time, but, um, (laughs) what I really wanted to sort of base the whole format of the book on is, uh, in back in the, in the seventies and eighties, there was a magazine called the comics Mm. journal. It is before my time. And, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the the cover is is kind of like a tribute to that because I remember the first issue of the comics journal I ever got, I was at a flea market, right, and I got it for like fifty cents, and it was a it was like an uh, this epic interview with John Byrne, and you know this is when he was doing the X Men, right? I think it was like nineteen eighty, and and that's like you know when that stuff hits you like right right age. I was probably I guess I was thirteen at the time, that hit me just like square in the forehead you know what i mean and i, I never got that out of my system and, and i used to actually read you know everybody used to read it everybody in the business used to read the comics journal until they just they lost their minds and they went off into some weird dimension of of loser nothingness uh, you know but anyhow i mean like all this like indie stuff that absolutely nobody reads you know what i mean like that's what they decided to make the focus of their book and they just killed themselves um it's funny too because <laughs> you know talking about a god's of spandex um i got like raked over the coals in the comics journal i mean this <laughs> is like the not the the real comics journal i mean the real comics journal died uh, 30 years ago really and it just became this corpse this zombie uh version of itself but um the guy who wrote the um the review had he wrote the review, and it was like a year and like almost two years after the book came out, because he had come by the blog, um, and like had some problem with with a, something that I was talking about, and like all oh, my readers just like pig piled on him. They just were like dumping on him. So he's just like, "Oh, I'll get my revenge. <laughs> I'll, I'll trash this guy's book, you know, in this magazine that absolutely nobody reads." I mean, you never <laughs> so, want to cross
0: okay. a, a nerd with a lot of time on their hands. That. But... <laughs>
1: Well, you know, nerd rage is um you know, serial killers, uh school shooters all, all of the uh, last 3 years you could say. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean nerd nerd rage is a very dangerous very dangerous thing. Um
0: the, the nerds are going to kill us all, as uh, our friend Isaac Weisshuber likes to say. Um, I, I do want to dig into like you touched on a lot of stuff in your book. A lot of a, a lot of stuff that we'll talk about that is sort of favorites of mine uh, in the comic book realm. But you also talked about uh, so I, I learned a few things from your book that I had never even know, knew before. One of them involves Jack Kirby. A few of them involved Jack Kirby. So. We touched on him very briefly, I think, the last time you were on the show. But maybe we can dive further into the background of Jack Kirby, uh, his influence on the comic industry a little bit. For those that don't really know who that is, for those that don't really follow comics, but uh, there's—I'll let you set up who Jack Kirby is. But there's something really fascinating, um, you know, the thing with the face. I'll say uh, that I never knew about that, just kind of blew my mind.
1: Jack Kirby is kind of like the Walt Disney of superhero comics. You know, co-created Captain America, co-created Hulk, Thor, uh, Fantastic Four. You know, was involved in the development of Iron Man. Uh, was involved in an earlier version of Doctor Strange called Doctor Doom. Uh, that one, that yeah. one cracked me up. I had never heard of that before. Uh, yeah, um, he just created so many characters. Um, he was like a machine, just. Uh, you know, I quoted this guy who i had interviewed who worked with him when Kirby was in animation and said he was like hermetically sealed within his own imagination, you know. But, you know, just full of energy. I mean, he just was constantly creating. Um, worked with Stan Lee on, you know, the Marvel Age of Comics. Uh, like I said, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, uh, Doctor Strange, Captain America, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, he had at least had a hand in, in everything... You know the classic Marvel age of comics. He had he he either created, co-created, or was involved somewhere on in the you know usually in the early stages of the development of all these different characters. Like for instance, he he and his partner had created a character called Spider-Man in the fifties, and it you know they they sort of evolved into this character called the Fly. You know they they they. <laughs> You know, they just developed a character in a different direction. But, you know, the, the name Spider-Man was, was he and his partner who, as I said, co-created uh, Captain America in the 40s. So um, just an unbelievably influential guy, um, but also incredibly strange, you know, obsessed with paranormal occult. you incredibly obsessed with ufology and ancient astronauts. I mean, ancient astronauts and ufology were like Huge obsessions for him,
0: and you pointed out he was a, a big uh, ancient astronauts enthusiast even before uh, von Daniken and, and Terry of the Gods sort of popularized it. I, I'm curious, like what were the the sources like that someone like that, like Jack Kirby, would be finding to to get him all into that stuff at that you know that point in time?
1: I don't know, man. Um, late '50s, so he did he did a lot of stories. Um, there was a company called Harvey. And Harvey published like stuff like Richie Rich and Casper the Friendly Ghost and stuff like that. And um, he did some science fiction books for them. And there's one issue where it's like he basically invents um, the X-Men, Planet of the Apes, and uh, Chariots of the Gods. All in one issue of one book. Uh, this book called, uh, I think it was called Black Cat or something. Uh, Black Cat Mystery. And it's just, he laid the entire groundwork in this one issue of one comic book for all these things. um, He did a, he did a a series in the seventies that I was a huge fan of called Commandy, the last boy on earth. And, it came about because DC uh, were, were vying for the license for *Planet of the Apes*, and they and they didn't get it. So they said, you know, can you do something like that to develop for an animation cartoon or something? So he did this book called *Commander* that I loved, loved to death when I was a kid. Um, but he, everybody said he was copying *Planet of the Apes*, and it's like no, *Planet of the Apes* was copying him because he came out, he came up with that idea. You know in the late 50s mid to late 50s i think it was like 56 or 57 so just extraordinarily uh creative guy uh, very strange clearly very deep into the spectrum let's just say um possibly uh got dosed with lsd at somewhere along the line um just just a, you know just an amazing uh amazing uh, creative genius I, there's no, there's no second, like there's no runner up in comics. There's nobody who's created as many concepts or characters or, or ideas or, you know, innovations as him. Like there's, it's a, the next runner up is like a distant second. So, um, yeah, but I, I was into his stuff from like really young, like five years old. And um, this one comic that I got uh, in, 75, um when I was, I think I was like eight years old, um like it changed my life. It, it was just one of those kind of things where, like, I, I won't say it's the same as, like, you know, uh, 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 an archaeologist finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it had like that same kind of transformative uh, effect on my life and it just totally changed. And it, it was this, it was Commandy Last Boy on Earth number 30, and it was uh, called UFO The Wildest Trip Ever. Hmm. Right. Because there was a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot of like LSD and acid stuff, even though like he was totally not of that generation. And uh, and it's actually it's interesting, too, because it's about um, alien abduction. Right. And that's. Pretty, pretty long before that stuff really became mainstream.
0: Today's episode of the Mark Clare Show is sponsored by, right here, Fox & Sons. FoxandSons.com, my favorite coffee brand. And I don't just say that because they're sponsors of the show. I say that because I get a one-pound bag shipped to my house. The proof is right here. Uh, Every single month, I get my pound of Fox & Sons delivered right to my house. You should, too. Of course, I don't expect you to just dive right in. With no idea what you're getting into. I want you to go get yourself a sample bag. Go over to foxandsons.com, F O X and S O N S.com. You can check out the Den Blend Dark, as is my preference, the Tanzanian Peaberry, Brazilian Honey Premp, a bunch of other flavors still to come. Steven's always mixing it up with new fresh beans. The best part about this business. Stephen started it to not only relive his love for sharing coffee with his father, but to teach his own sons about entrepreneurship. If that doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies, I don't know what will. Just kidding. Yes, I do. This coffee will. So head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use discount code MCS to get yourself 18% off your order. You're going to be coming back for more. Trust me, foxandsons.com, discount code MCS. Back to the show. Yeah, and then what really blew my mind is that that, with that panel from that one comic, The Face on Mars, where Jack Kirby very, very accurately portrayed what would... Sometime later, I don't know, a decade or two later, uh, be a very similar image of what people call the face on Mars. This image from Mars, uh, from uh, like the, the Viking, whatever, one of those probes. But this was way before that the Viking, Viking one, one. That's what it is. Yeah. But that this drawing, even I think they even called it the face on Mars in the book. Um, that that blew my mind. So I don't know. What do you think is going on there? Did Jack Kirby have some some insights that uh, that we might be might not be aware of?
1: Well, that's. You know, the thing is that that's the tip of the iceberg with him. Uh, he anticipated or remote viewed or had some sort of, I used to call him the space age Nostradamus. You know, he just had that sense. I mean, he just could sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. He prophesied things that um, like, that he shouldn't, shouldn't have known about. And the face on Mars is one of them. I mean, of course, that raises the the chicken and the egg argument. Like, you know, was that a real object sure, there? Yeah. Or did some was there some Jack Kirby fan at NASA? I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, maybe the face uh, but, on
0: maybe NASA made the face on NARS from Jack Kirby. You know, that, that might that might be yeah, the more, yeah. bl- most believable explanation.
1: Well, either way, um, like I said, that's just the tip of the iceberg. He he anticipated a lot of uh, of crazy stuff and actually there's a there's a story that he did in the late 50s i think in that same series no it was in alarming tales that was like very weirdly um in a very strange cartoony sci-fi way kind of about how jack parsons met marjorie hmm. cameron you know which is like something that nobody knew about until the 70s when um Kenneth Grant published the magical revival. So he
0: was certainly some kind of insider uh, of some sorts, you would think,
1: or had a maybe he
0: was accessing, you know, the Akashic record or something was going on. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, listen, I'm a firm believer in all that kind of thing. You know, I, I believe that we have, or some of us at least, have ways of accessing information that's beyond normal human comprehension. I, you know, I mean, that's that's something I take for granted. And a lot of it, you know, like I used to do a lot of stuff on him uh, in in the blog um, before, you know, Marvel, the Marvel movies became like the sort of dominant cultural icons that they they became. And it was kind of funny because like I could tell like a lot of people like, why you know, shut up about this guy. (laughs) Why do you keep talking about this guy? And then sure enough, you know, a couple of years later, it's like marvel the marvel universe basically took control of the the multiplexes and i would say to people see 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 what i was talking about see what i meant you know so uh
0: you know there you go yeah certainly a fascinating uh fascinating person uh whether it's inside the pages of the book or outside, and I, there's definitely a progression as well in his art. Um, I don't know if it was like you said, if he just started dabbling or got dosed with acid or what, but it's like at some point in the '60s, suddenly we've got the Celestials, we've got the New Gods, we've got all this space age wild giant uh, giant creatures. I mean, it's just it's it's basically just um, a representation of like you said, a lot of the modern sort of ancient aliens type stuff only decades before. Uh, so it just continues to fascinate that he was so much ahead of, of stuff that I mean is now I mean it, that stuff is essentially pushed by our government and our mainstream media at this point but uh back then it was much more subversive mm, mm.
1: yes it was and it was also incredibly marginal so alright so Charge of the Gods comes out in the late what year I think about? it was
0: 67 like, or thereabouts
1: well, it came out in Germany in '66, and then I think it was, uh, it was published in this country in like '68, some, somewhere, yeah, 68, somewhere like that. Yeah, and um, I mean that book was huge for a long time, you know. And then he he published a bunch of um, sequels to it and so on. That book was very, very popular up until I would say like the early, like '72, '73, '74, around there, and then they kind of just fell away, um, even though people were writing you know, books similar to that. And I think in 75 was when Sitchin, no, 76 was when Zechariah Sitchin wrote The Twelfth Planet. And that kind of redefined the whole ancient, like the whole ancient astronaut thing um, was very much popularized by Von Donakin, but at least for the, you know, the 90s, the whole 90s scene, like the whole Sitchin thing was really you know that was the the predominant, um, right? Because von Daniken would point out you know, would point normal.
0: out a lot of the weird things. He'd say, "Look at this architecture. This must be aliens." Look at this. Look at that. But Sitchin supposedly interpreted the actual writings and said, "No, look. Here's the whole story. Like I, I've actually got the tale." So for people in that realm, it's like it's almost like they got the uh, they got the cohesive story they were looking for.
1: Yeah, um, but you know. People I don't think people really talk about Sitchin anymore. Um that, that was big. Um like David Icke was a real big fan of that stuff and and kind of took that under his belt and made that part of his whole spiel. Uh Jim Mars was, you know, big follower of uh Sitchin. Um there was a book, uh, that was very popular in conspiracy circles back in the day. I, I don't think people even remember it now. There's a book called "Gods of Eden" by a guy named William Bramley. Um, that was very much part of that whole uh, Sitchin-esque, you know, the Sumerians and so on. Um, but he, he died. Gosh, when did he die? Like I'm tempted to say 2011 that he died, but um, at that point, ancient aliens you know, that that was such a phenomenon for so many years, and that was, you know, basically um uh, Von Donneken fanfic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was, like, it was like, there was this bunch of guys like William Henry and uh, David Wilcock and um David Childress and all these people just like kissing Von Donneken's ass. Of course, Giorgio. And Everyone's favorite. Giorgio Sukulos. He was, um, he was actually, he, he worked for Von Donneken. That's how he sort of rose to fame. And it's so weird because... <laughs> um, I was thinking about this tonight. <clears throat> um, all this crap with, you know, Grouch and and Elizondo and uh, Tom DeLong. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just made all that stuff so incredibly uncool. (laughs) (laughs) It's like,
0: yeah, for, for however cool Jack Kirby made this stuff look, I think it's the opposite is happening now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's, it's such a normie thing now, but I remember, so I remember like back in 2017 or so, maybe it was 2016, Cause you know, Hillary Clinton was talking about UFOs and John Podesta was talking about UFOs and, ugh. and then Tom DeLonge comes along with his whole boondoggle. You know what I mean? And he just, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I, I think Tom DeLonge's very, very talented. I I'm a big fan of, um, angels and airwaves. Uh, cause it's, it's kind of like hitting those buttons of the music that I listened to when I was young, but, um, he was a terrible choice to push that whole, to push that whole agenda, and he just made it just so incredibly uncool. And um, and here we are, you know. I mean, I I just stopped. I used to, I was writing a lot about ufology and, and ancient aliens and stuff, and then I just it's like I snapped out of it. Like somebody just slapped me in the head and goes, snap out of it.
0: You You don't want to be associated with these guys. That's for sure. Um, No. Well, I want to move on to discuss, uh, you discuss a number of my favorite personal creators uh, in this book. So I want to touch on a few of them and, and some of their sort of a cultural slash occult significance. Uh, I think I have to start with one of my all time favorite creators and really specifically because of the character that, that you do bring up. That's Mike Magnola and Hellboy. So mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about mm-hmm. Hellboy. Uh, I think it first came out in the, in the early nineties. Uh, so it's somewhat, somewhat modern compared to a lot of the stuff you talk about in the book, but take it away on Hellboy.
1: Yeah. So that was about 93. So Mike Lignola, um, <coughs> was, he worked, uh, he started working at Marvel. He did actually the first rocket raccoon miniseries, I believe. And then I started to notice his work cause he did a book called cosmic odyssey, which is very Kirby-esque was all based. It was kind of like JLA versus the new gods kind of deal. Uh, have you ever seen cosmic odyssey? You not. Know that? Oh, you should look, it's a great series. You should definitely check that out. Um, and the art is phenomenal. <clears throat> and then he did a book. Uh, he really made his bones with fandom. He did a book called Gotham by Gaslight, which was kind of like the steampunk uh, version of Batman. And that book was a huge hit. Huge hit. Uh, everybody, everybody I knew, you know, who's reading comics and stuff, was re- read that Gotham by Gaslight. And that got him the gig. Uh, he did um, production design for Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula movie. Um, and he also did production design for Disney's Atlantis. That's a movie that nobody remembers. (laughs) That movie just kind of came and went, but, um, he created this care. So what happened is that all the uh, big DC and Marvel artists quit. Um, well, a lot of them to start image back in, that was 92. Mm -hmm. So it was like Jim Lee. Uh, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, um Wills Petracio, uh, Liefeld, Rob Liefeld's that a big one, yeah. Mm. Yeah, L- Liefeld did Young Blood. Um, so everybody, um all the all of Marvel's top artists just quit at once and started this company. So then all these other publishers were sort of scrambling to do their own version of that. And Dark Horse started an imprint called The Legend, and they had like uh, John Byrne and so on, and that's, that's where Mike Mignola created Hellboy for. Um, and Hellboy is just basically, I mean, it's pretty much a copy, you know, kind of almost outright of Jack Kirby's uh, The Demon, right? And, um, just a second here. you know, it was basically the same idea. It was like a demon that fought for good. You know what I'm saying, and in this case, it was a demon that had been summoned up by uh like Nazi sorcerers in the, the the waning days of the war and like was put to work um you know basically kind of like an occult detective thing and like I think in the first first storyline, I think it was like versus Rasputin, putin maybe like in Rasputin the comic yeah. was, was yeah. that what it was? That was he was, the, he was um, one of the
0: like the ones who summoned him to to the Earth.
1: Yeah, was that the Conqueror Worm? Was that what it was called? I think that's the second or third
0: storyline. But yeah, I mean that was the the main arc of that that first arc was all with Rasputin.
1: Okay, well either way, so um, so he starts Hellboy, and uh, it's very very well done um, as far as. His, his research is just top notch and he didn't like just make shit up. I mean, he went back into the lore and, and that was the basis of his stories, right? It was a cult lore from um, like the Middle Ages and stuff. And he was also big into Lovecraft. So there's a huge kind of Lovecraft influence there as well. But um, you know, they did make some movies, none of which I liked. Um,
0: Definitely avoid. I mean, the Guillermo del Toro ones are at least visually kind of cool, but I mean, story wise, they're they're lacking. You could say.
1: But it's the exact opposite. So Hellboy is is about quiet and eerie and creepy, and Del Toro is about big, loud, Mm -hmm. and jump scares. Yeah, they don't match the tone of the comics at all. At all. Um, They did. They did an animated version. That was a little closer, and they they actually adopted some of this or adapted some of the stories. For the um, one was called uh, Blood and Iron, and I forget what the other one. Like these were directed DVDs and stuff, and they were pretty good. Like they're pretty entertaining, but um, nothing matches the comic books because the comic books are just so eerie. It it almost seems like you're reading somebody's dreams, like you're sort of eavesdropping on somebody's dreams, and it's really very, very effective uh, in that regard.
0: And you can tell Mignola is very well read and understood when it comes to lore, uh, mythology, occult symbolism, because it is just mm-hmm. it is just strewn throughout and in, and in no way done randomly. Everything that he puts in there is done with purpose, and it's very clear that he has a, a very, I don't really know his personal background, but he clearly has a deep knowledge
1: of this stuff. He does. He does. Um, He stopped drawing it, you know, several years ago. And the only artist that I really thought captured his mood was a guy named Richard Corbin. And uh, Richard Corbin was a guy who I was a big fan of when I was like a little kid. And I should have been reading Richard Corbin comics because it was all underground comics. Uh, And he did a lot of stuff for, um, I don't know if you know Creepy and Eerie, those magazines from the 70s. Have you ever heard of those? You are too young? Just a little. God, just shoot me in the head right now. Sounds like there's a lot of good stuff Uh, I got to go out (laughs) and find, you know? Yeah, and that stuff. Um, so it's basically it start off being like, um, like creepy. Near he start off sort of doing like the whole EC. Do you know what EC yeah. comics are? So they're trying to do like EC comics, and then they kind of really went in their own direction. They um, they also published Vampirella. That one, um, you yeah. Familiar with that character? Yeah. So um, trust me, if you were a teenage cool-
0: boy at a '90s comic convention, you knew who Vampirella was.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so Richard Corbin did some great stories and he, he, his stuff is very eerie, but it's eerie in a different way. Um, there was a a book, uh, or at least, uh, an arc that he did for Hellboy called, uh, The Crooked Man. Have you ever read the crooked man? Yeah. dot arc? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's Richard Corbin. Corbin did a lot of work for, um, he, he did a lot of work for Marvel and DC in like the early 2000s. He did, um. He did a couple arcs on Hellblazer, John Constantine Hellblazer. He did um, he did a Hulk miniseries. He did a Luke Cage miniseries. Um, yeah, I, I'm just you know, I was just always a real big fan of his uh, stuff. He did a lot of work for heavy metal in the '80s. i do not you know if anybody's familiar with that book, but uh,
0: well, w- one character you mentioned there up. Uh, provides a pretty good segue into another creator that I wanted to talk about that you spend a good amount of time on in the book. For good reason, he's he's one of the most prolific and and well-known comic creators out there. Uh, He's also a uh, self-professed and very, very open uh, black magic occult magician Uh, that is one Mr. Alan Moore, someone whose work has been some of my favorites over the years. Uh, It doesn't all strike with me. It's kind of, he has several different styles. I actually prefer a lot of his superhero work uh, over some of his other weirder stuff, but his Swamp Thing is still number one to me, too. So, uh, but where do you start with Alan Moore? Because he's certainly a very, very interesting character in, in his own right, besides the characters he writes.
1: So we're coming up on the... Um, well, I guess we passed the 40th anniversary when I first started reading Alan Moore because I was reading Saga of the Swamp Thing when I, I, I think I was probably one of the few people in the, the world that was reading that book. Um, they In 1982, they did a um, Swamp Thing movie with Adrian Barbeau and I think Louis Jardin was in it. Um, a guy named Dick rock played the Swamp Thing. Terrible movie. Um, but DC relaunched Swamp Thing, which I was a huge fan of in the 70s, um, relaunched Swamp Thing. And since I was you know so into the character, I was just buying the book every month. Uh, and it was okay. Uh, There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but then Alan Moore starts writing it. You know, he comes over from England. He was writing for uh, Warrior, uh mythology t- series. That's that's where he did like um Viva Vendetta and uh, I think I think Marvel Man was in Warrior. I think Marvel Man was in Warrior. And then he did another series called the Bo Jeffrey Saga. I don't know if you're familiar with these. Only only from
0: those are only ones I know about from reading your book, yeah.
1: Yeah, so he came over and um, did the Swamp Thing, and I was just blown away from the very first, like, the very first issue was kind of, he was just wrapping up this other storyline, right? And I just, it just sucked me right in. And then he did this, the second issue he did is world famous among, you know, hardcore comics guys, it was an, a story called The Anatomy Lesson. Mm-hmm. And that kind of rebooted the entire character. I mean, he just totally changed the whole thrust of the storyline. And I was just, I, I I couldn't wait for those issues to come out. Um, I kind of lost interest. uh, I'd say, you know, a couple years after I started. Like, so I started reading his stuff in October. This this month, probably around this time of the month, forty years ago. And um and then he did this like menstruating werewolf story. And I was just like <laughs> That sounds like a very Alan Moore esque uh, story to Yeah, you. I was just like, no, thank you. Um I, I, I thought it just I thought he just lost his inspiration for the character, which happens, you know, it wasn't his character and stuff. And then he did he did The Watchmen, which my wife was a fan of. Like I wasn't reading that title when it was coming out um rather erratically. Because I at the time my my two big books were I was obsessed with Love and Rockets. And uh, that's when Miller was doing The Dark Knight Returns, which to me was like I, I can't tell you how many times I read those stories over and over again. I would read those, I would read one of those issues and then like read it again like three or four times in a row. I, I was just so if you want to know what 1986 was like, just read The Dark Knight Returns. I, he just captures the zeitgeist so brilliantly. I and that that book just blew me away. And I remember reading like Watchmen. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, I, it didn't really. It was too intellectual. It was too um. It was too conceptual. It just didn't have that like punch you in the stomach kind of feeling that that the Frank Miller stuff had. Um, but you know, I did read the whole thing. I did read the whole thing. And then he got into a tiff with DC over um, the rights to Watchmen. And he started doing like a bunch of, um, he did this thing called uh, A Small Killing, which I just thought was horrible. And then he did this thing called Big Numbers with Bill Sienkiewicz that he did like two issues of and then somebody else did it. He was just doing all this like really obscure stuff. And then he did From Hell, which, you know, was the basis of the Johnny Depp movie. And um, I really, really hated the artwork in From Hell. A guy named Eddie, yeah, a guy named Eddie Campbell, yeah. And I, I mean, I did read the whole thing. You know, I, I did read the whole book later in in a a, uh, trade paperback collection. Um, And it's based on this whole like Masonic conspiracy. This book called um, There's a guy named Stephen A. Knight. It was like I think it was called like The Final Secret of Jack the Ripper, and it was this whole thing about that the Prince of Wales had knocked up some prostitute and the killings were all to sort of silence everyone who knew about it. You know, so you've seen the movie, that's kind of like the basis of the whole storyline. Um, I I liked it okay. Uh, but I, like I said, I really, really hated, I really hated the artwork. Um, and then he did a bunch of stuff uh, for Rob Leifeld over at, uh, what was it, it was called Ossie, Rob Liefeld quit Image, and he did he start Awesome? Wasn't it called first?
0: Yeah, well, he's first he started Awesome Comics as a a side label when he still was at Image, which really pissed people off. And then once he broke away, he went all the way to Awesome, and then he turned Awesome into Maximum Press. But yeah, Alan Moore did a run with him on Supreme, which I've actually been going through for my other podcast on Secret Print Comics. I've been going through that series, which I, I really enjoy his uh his Supreme work
1: myself. Well, the stuff that really, you know, when I felt like I kind of like got back on his wavelength was when he did um, America's best comics. Mm-hmm. He did Promethea and Tom strong and uh, uh, top 10, which I think was, was that a movie? I think that was a movie. I'm not sure. Um, I really liked that stuff, but it was the same kind of deal work because Promethea, I really liked a lot. And then like, halfway through the run, it just becomes like, you know, I call it theosophist summer camp. It was just like,
0: (laughs) yeah, that, that that phrase had me, had me cracking up in the book. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't even a a story anymore. It was just like his little dissertation on the tarot and the Kabbalah and everything. And I just thought, you know, if I want to read this stuff, I'll read like the actual source material. I, I don't want to read like, you know, some, your, your Wonder Woman ripoff walking through Alistair Crowley land, you know, it just was so dumb. I, it just really, really turned me off. Um, but then what he did is he did a book for Avatar called The Courtyard. And then he did another series, a sequel to that called Neonomicon, which was kind of like his take on Lovecraft. Well both of them were his take on Lovecraft, you know, very influenced uh by a story that he'd written for a book called I think it was called The Star of Wisdom. Um, I think that's where he originally wrote The Courtyard for. But anyhow, um, it was clear to me that, so he did this book and he, he he came right out and said, I did this book because, you know, I had a tax bill that I had to pay. And I needed some money. <laughs> that's why I didn't, you know, but, um But I thought it was great and it was so clearly um an x-files pitch that he wrote mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> some of the scenes too i mean you 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 kind of shared one of the screen the screenshots of uh you know from that book and it's it's literally it's an x-files scene i mean it, it's Mulder and Scully
1: oh oh absolutely i mean when you read that book and think this is Mulder and Scully and Doggett like John Doggett it, it's so obvious to me um and it see cuz back in like, like the fifth season of the X-Files, like Stephen King wrote an episode and and William Gibson wrote an episode, William Gibson wrote an episode of the seventh season too. So I think Alan Moore was thinking, Hey, I can, I can do that. And, and it just seems so obvious to me. Like he had a tax bill to pay. And he's like, shit, what do, what do I get to publish? Oh, I have this X-Files pitch. I'll just change the names of the characters and put it out in a comic. Oh, and the other thing that I should mention too, is league of extraordinary gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was phenomenal especially those first three or four series oh my god i just thought like i think i thought that that this was like the best uh like heroic adventure stuff ever done i, I think alan moore is a genius i really do um the one thing though is that and that i sort of go to length to, to point out in the book is that all of his stories and characters and stuff are all re- revisions of other people's characters i mean the one thing about Alan Moore is that like, he doesn't create his own stuff. What he does is he'll take somebody else's idea and and improve on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, um, or
0: giving a different angle or a different take or flipping the whole thing around. But it, it, yeah, it's, it's his finest work, even Watchmen. Those aren't really original characters. They're just kind of takes on these other Charles Charlton characters as well.
1: So. Yeah. Um, so what had happened is that DC had gotten, the, so Charlton went out of business and Charlton's another story. Uh, that that whole story hasn't been written, but that was like basically a mob run outfit. And basically they just published comic books as money laundering. <laughs> Seriously. I, it's, it's a really fascinating story. Um, and a lot of people will, won't come out and talk about it, but they'll sort of allude to it. Like the sort of like, you know, make a little hints and stuff. But anyhow, um, they had a bunch of characters like Blue Beetle, which was just a big flop movie recently, and all these uh, Peacemaker with John—I think John Cena's mm-hmm. doing now. Um, so he uh, DC bought the rights, and Moore said, "You know, I want to do this thing—you know, this thing called Watchmen—with them." And they said, "No, <laughs> <You know? laughs> we paid a lot of money for these characters. You're not going to sit there and ruin them for us, you know, with your weird, perverted uh, left." We didn't buy these characters
0: so you could have them raping
1: each other, Alan. Yeah 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 yeah. So um yeah. <laughs> and uh the other thing the one the one book that I should mention that I didn't really go into a lot of depth in this book on because it's 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 a comic book but it's not so much a superhero comic book was um Providence. Did you read Providence? I'm not Providence is phenomenal. Uh that is like I think that's Pretty much the last thing he's done for comics, and if if it is, that's like a great way to go out. You know, it's kind of like how Bowie went out with Black Star. It's just, it's a great farewell, let's just say. Uh, but um, do you think someone yeah, I mean,
0: like Alan Moore? Do you think Alan Moore, because he does openly talk about black magic and and using magic and something he's very immersed in? Do you think that he actually views his his efforts and his creative output in the comic book industry as some sort of form of magic, or is it just something that he is so interested in that it is just naturally, well, in some ways naturally bleeds into his work in other ways, such as in Promethea where it's, you know, Theosophy Summer Camp, not, not so naturally, but uh, is it, is it more just a thing he's into, or do you think he actually is trying to do some of it there?
1: No, he's pretty clear that, you know, like doing these stories is part of his magical practice.
0: Have you ever heard? I'm not sure if you ever heard about this, but have you ever heard? You know, because he's as you mentioned earlier, he's he one of the creator, or he, I think he is the creator of, of uh, Hellblazer, uh, John Constantine, I believe he is. And uh,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, he created him for Swamp Thing, right?
0: Exactly. Who's basically uh, he's basically like a black magic occult uh, detective, I guess you could say. And there have been stories, not just from Alan Moore, but from many creators who have worked on Hellblazer, that they have encountered someone seemingly like the character of Hellblazer in real life, who has said Hellblazer-esque, yeah. John Constantine-esque things to them. And more than one creator has said that. And that, that story has always just fascinated me. It makes you yeah. wonder if did they create Hellblazer or did Hellblazer be, use them to be, be inserted into the comic book realm?
1: Or maybe um, this external version of, uh, of Constantine is a, um, is a tulpa. Perhaps. There you go. You know what I mean? I, yeah. But, see, the thing is that uh, when he created um, Hellblazer, or Constantine, you know, he's, Hellblaze was the name of the title. You know, he didn't create a character called Hellblaze. But, um, you know, he said that he based that character on, like, you know, these kind of characters that he knew that sort of, he was, like, friends with um, the guys from Bauhaus and so on and uh so he was sort of in that that kind of those circles like kind of counterculture underground punk circles and he said that he just always you know the occultists that he met weren't like dr strange they were like (laughs) these you know these scumbag um grifters Mm -hmm. you know and that's really where uh constantine comes from and the interesting thing too is that visually he was based on sting i don't know if you knew that yes yeah. <laughs> it was funny too, because um that was that was at a time when the police were like, you know, you couldn't turn on the radio without hearing a police song. And um I I just remember seeing that and just thought, come on, <laughs> no, are you kidding me? Seriously. Is I, mean, I, I, I can't now? believe they
0: did a Constantine movie and didn't cast Sting as Constantine. Blows my mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um I everybody loves Keanu Reeves, but he was not that was not the guy that yeah.
0: I would have cast. That was not that Keanu. That, that's not the Keanu we know now anyway, but, but bad casting for, for what that character supposed to be, um, mm-hmm. one, one more character. I do want to talk character. I, I say, character, but I, I, really creator, but I suppose he's another character in, in his, his own right. And, uh, it's a creator. I, some of his work, I like some of his work, I can't stand. So it's kind of touch and go for me, but he's a really interesting character in the context of the subjects we've been discussing. Uh, so I think we'd be remiss not to discuss Grant Morrison a bit as well. Um, um, also comes from sort of that British sort of punk scene. Uh, so there's probably some some overlap there. But uh, I'll get to the most interesting part about Grant Morrison in a second that I, that I pulled from your book. But why don't you just set up a, a little bit of his backstory and uh, what he's put into comics.
1: Well, so what happened is that there was a comic scene in England in the early 80s because there was, um, a, you know, there were, uh, like I said, Warrior. And there was another series called 2000 AD, which... Um, Judge Dredd ran in and, you know, it was just there was a lot of kind of stuff going on. It was a very small scene, but, you know, a lot of talent. And after Alan Moore became such a big hit, um, this editor at DC called Karen Berger went over there and she just basically just scooped everyone up. <laughs> and this is where you had Dave Gibbons and uh, uh, Neil Gaiman and um, Grant Morrison was definitely one of them. Peter Milligan, uh, Brendan McCarthy, um, who else? Just a lot of the, you know, just basically took the cream of the crop. Um, Alan Davis, who, who, you know, became a big fan favorite when he worked on JLA and so on. So um, just basically just took everyone and basically kind of killed the British comic scene overnight. You know, it just sort of sucked all the oxygen out. And Grant Morrison was one of the uh, one of her finds, and he started. I remember I real a lot of his early stuff. I really did like. Um, I you know he started on Animal Man, I think it was, and that was that was in Vertigo. So basically, Karen Berger just created like um, this entire imprint for all these artists and writers that she took from England. Uh, It was called Vertigo. And Sandman became part of that. I mean, Sandman, which is a a series on Netflix now, uh, that was their bestseller. I mean, that was a, people forget that that book was big. That book outsold, I think that was like DC's bestseller at one point. You know, I think it outsold everything except for like Batman and JLA. So, Graham Morrison was one of them. And Grant Morrison is is um, a self creation, I guess you would say. He did this book called The Invisibles that he said was being um, (sighs) dictated to him by extraterrestrials that he had come into contact with. That's the one. That's the interesting
0: point that I pulled out. (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, I. He he means that he he has said that in interviews that he was in Nepal and encountered an alien race that dictated this story to him. He's actually said this, yeah,
1: yeah, he did say that. He says a lot of stuff like that. Um, that's not even the most outrageous thing he's ever said. And then when DC was about to cancel that book, he did the little wankathon, oh, yeah, you
0: you gotta, you gotta, I mean, not describe it in detail, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta tell people about this because this was like I had never heard this one before,
1: okay? So, um, so this is really interesting because he. Did uh, a Justice League um, revamp? I think around '96 or so, Mm -hmm. and it became like DC's biggest hit. Um, It was like top five, top ten book every month. It was a huge book, and but he was also doing like all this weird stuff for Vertigo. And one of these series he was doing was The Invisibles, which was just like clearly a story that he was just making up as he went along, and there was no. Narrative thread. Um, it was just like whatever he was reading or thinking about that month, he'd, he'd make a story about. I mean, it's just like, I mean, some of it is really good. I mean, some of those stories are really good, but um, it was just, it was so obvious that he was just making this shit up as he went along. That it was just,
0: or that, they, it was or just that a, the alien race was making it up as they went along. And, yeah, and they,
1: yeah, it was. It was clearly just a lark for him. So um, they canceled the book, and then. When he started doing, I, I, probably when he started doing JLA, you know, they, he got them to re, to re, um, reboot it, and um, and then they, it was in danger of cancellation again because it just wasn't it wasn't selling that well. And what he did in the, the letters pages of the book is he said, um, you know, on. I think it was on Nia's Eve. It was that, you know, he wanted everyone to focus on the sigil that he printed in the, in the letters page and, and, you know, pull one out basically, um, squeeze one out, you know, while you're sort of (laughs) meditating on this. That's what I call, I call him the wank commander, Uh, (laughs) 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 but, um, you know, it, it quote unquote worked. Um, DC revived for another twelve issues. That was a countdown to 1999, I think it was, or no, the year 2000, something like that.
0: And the idea is that everyone was supposed to f- focus on this like certain sigil or symbol while performing this yeah. wanking wankathon at the exact same time, which is supposed to create some sort of magical mm. influence on on
1: the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And um, but then he quit. He quit DC and went to Marvel, and and. Did a, an X Men report? Did it work by the way? Popular.
0: Did he? Did we ever get any reports on the results well, of the?
1: <laughs> well, the results was is that the you know he wanted the the whole purpose of this was to get the Invisibles renewed again, and it was renewed again. But I don't think it had anything to do with his, uh, you know, his little ritual there. Uh, I think it had more to do with that DC wanted to just keep him happy. I guess we can't prove that it didn't. So, it, it, yeah, we can't prove that it didn't, but. Uh, i don't know man so i he he's he's done some good stuff but he was always he put himself in this competition with alan moore and he's just not in alan moore's league uh as a creator he just isn't i mean alan moore has created icons you know um the smiley face with the, the splash of blood on it that people like who had no idea what the Watchmen were, I mean, I would see people wearing that pin at like punk rock shows and stuff had no idea what the Watchmen was, but that became like, that was a real sigil. Right. And then the, um, when the whole anonymous thing was big, the guy Fox masks from, from Viva Vendetta. Yeah. So, I mean, Greg Morrison is a very entertaining guy. Um, you know, he seems to be a little depleted. seems to be a little broken these days, which I guess is just inevitable uh, because that industry just chews people up and spits them out. but he just he's not even i mean he's not even fit to you know polish Alan Moore's wand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's just he's not in the same league. and you know that's no dig against him, really, because nobody is, you know I mean, like I said, Jack Kirby was like, that's the king of the superhero creators. And like for everything else is Alan Moore. So it's just like, that's why I kind of focused on them in a lot of ways in the book, because it's just like Jack Kirby and then Alan Moore. I mean, that's that's the story of, of the whole comic book culture phenomenon. You know what I mean? Um, those are the two guys that really made it happen. And there's just you know, for what Moore does, there's no, there's all, you know, there's a very distant second. For what Kirby did, there's a very di- di- distant second. I mean, you talk about Kirby is the king of the superhero comics, and Alan Moore sort of the king of everything else. You know, all the weirdo kind of occult, whatever.
0: Man, if we could, if we could fantasy a, a book, uh, a, you know, a creative team that could never actually happen. Uh, Alan Moore writing a Jack Kirby book. That's that's what I want to see. Just let let them loose in their prime.
1: Well, I, I know that Alan Moore wanted to. Uh, I know at one point, see, the problem was that Kirby, um, had a lot of health problems. He started having a lot of uh, problems with his eyes, like in the seventies and everybody was sort of, you know, pointing out that his drawing skills had really suffered, but it was because he was having a lot of physical problems. I think he had a heart attack. And then in the eighties, I know that he had a stroke, like a really serious stroke and he developed a tremor and, um, he just couldn't he couldn't do it anymore i mean he tried he did he he was still doing a lot of work for both animation and comics i mean the guy was just a workhorse but I, i do know that Moore wanted to do something with kirby but kirby just wasn't up to it he wasn't healthy enough um he just couldn't do the work so uh it never happened but that would have been you know something interesting to see
0: for sure. Well, Chris, one more thing I want to get your thoughts on, and then we'll head over to the smoke-filled room and uh, get a little weirder here. Uh, but you know, you you you, met, you talked about the, your main premise here is that this is this era is winding down. Uh, the cultural phenomenon known as uh, superheroes is fading away. I don't think I don't think the comic medium is fading away, and there'll probably always be no, not that at all. will always exist. And there's there's always interesting stuff out there. Is the good thing because the medium is 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 one thing, and it's it, the medium will always remain. And there's always going to be things interesting. You might have to dig a little further to find them sometimes. Um, But nonetheless, I'm curious, um, as this culture phenomenon f- dies, a, dies a, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a, a slow, a silent death or go out with a, a, big, a big bloody bang. But either way, I'm curious what you see it being replaced with. Do you think this is a phenomenon, um, a modern mythology that sort of became in, in many ways to people that didn't have religion, almost like their own religion, almost like something that uh, is what drove their own, their own mythos? So do you see that being replaced with something else and, and what, that, what what may that be?
1: I I don't think that you could ever replace the, you know, you can't fill the same space that like, say the Marvel universe filled from like 2008 to 2019 or 20 or so that, that space can never be refilled. You can never, that's a, that's a point in time that I don't think you can replicate Um, because things are just too, you know, first of all, Hollywood isn't just, very very serious trouble very very serious trouble and I don't think people really understand you know because so many movies were losing so much money for so many years and it was like the Marvel movies were making so much money that they are just basically keeping Disney afloat and with the end of the Marvel Universe as we knew it I mean Disney is circling the drain right now Um, I mean just read the news. I mean, everybody's talking about how their stock just com- completely collapsed and they're talking about just basically selling off their assets and then just selling Disney as an as a IP farm to Apple. Mm. Which is like, I can't even imagine that. Um, comic books in a lot of ways are more popular than ever because of manga and YA. Mm. I mean, kids, I, I think there are more kids reading comics today than, than were like when I was a kid. I mean, I didn't know anybody Besides myself, when when until I got to high school, they read comics except for me. Like there, were, I think there were a couple of kids who were into them for a little while and then kind of got out of it. But like I was the only person I knew until I got to high school that was like heavily heavily into comics. Um, none of my friends were, you know, none of the kids in the neighborhood were. It was just invisible. So. It was really kind of almost a miraculous thing that it became so dominant, and you know you can't discount the the effect that the first Batman movie had, but to see the first Batman movie basically was almost like a one off because they you know the, you saw a lot of movies like Dick Tracy and the Phantom and the Shadow and they, they were trying to sort of recapture that lightning in a bottle, and then Batman ends up with that stupid bat nipples Batman and <laughs> like Robin the it just basically killed it until i think it was 2000 2001 when the first x men movie came out um, that but even then i mean the the whole superhero thing did not take off until 2008 right so almost 20 years after the first batman movie um, when you had the dark knight and iron man that's real that's you know if you want to pinpoint when it really took off and, and I published A uh, God's With Spandex just before that, it's like a few months before it really, you know, the shit really hit the fan. So um, it, I, don't, I don't see, I, I don't know. You know, the other problem too, is that there just aren't enough kids anymore. You know, um, no matter how many adults read comics, I mean, that's, if you took all the adults that read comics, I mean, it's always been about maybe like a quarter of a million people in in this country, at least. But the, the amount of kids who watch the X-Men cartoon in like the '90s, I mean, what? 10, 15 million kids used to watch that cartoon every month, uh, every week. Um, you know, the movies. I mean, the comic books themselves have always been almost incidental, incidental to, to, to the real popularity of superheroes, which is movies, cartoons, TV shows, toys, mm-hmm. games that kind
0: of thing. Well, I guess we will see. Maybe it'll be, maybe, uh, maybe everyone will rally around, uh, you know, the, our space brothers, uh, descending down or whatnot. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll be our new heroes, (laughs) but uh, only time will tell. Chris, uh, we'll dig a little bit further into some of these concepts in the smoke-filled room segment in just a minute. Uh, Before we wind down though, just let everybody know where they can find all your work. And whatnot, but I do. I do want to also say though, uh, this book, the Spandex Files. It is. I, I really want to recommend picking it up, not just uh, for the the written content, but as you kind of mentioned, it is very. It's it's done in a very visually uh, pleasing way, and it's really a, it's a really fun read. And I, I and when I say an easy read, I don't, I don't mean that it's. Uh, you know, it's not its not deep. It has its sort of deep elements, you could say, but it's just, it feels good to read because it's done in, in a way that that continues to, you know, it sort of makes it feel fun along the way. So I just want to commend you uh, for how the book is done and recommend people check that out.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. Spandex Files is available on Amazon in both softcover and hardcover. And I got to tell you something, Amazon hardcovers are beautiful. Uh, they're so nice. They're so crisp. They're so just really nice books. So I would recommend that you get it in hardcover. It's not a book that I'm going to do an ebook of because it really doesn't, you know, you know how the book Mm -hmm. is laid out and everything. It doesn't really lend itself to that format. Um, But secret sun.blogspot.com is, you know, you can always find me there Uh, and secret sun.blog or secret sun blog on Twitter. Secret Sun speaks. All right, well, it's the farewell
0: to the superheroes, but it's certainly not a farewell to your work. So continue to follow Chris over at the Secret Sun blog. Chris, thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: Thank you.
0: All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Chris Knowles, one of my most consistently popular and most requested guests. So, of course, I jumped at the opportunity to discuss the spandex files with him, and we dug even deeper in the smoke-filled room, as we always do, the special bonus segment for Mark Clare Show premium subscribers. We dug deeper into the concepts mentioned in the show, including the concept of tulpas, the concepts of remote viewing and channeling, including Chris's own uh, meditation practice that he does, his own trance practice that he does that helps with his work of synchro mysticism. Again, such a fun word to say. You can learn more about just what that is in the Smoke-Filled Room bonus segment. My friends, if you're only listening to this version of the show, you're only getting two-thirds of the show each and every week, but you can be one of the elites, one of the elite eights over at the Mark Clair show. m a r c c l a i r M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com has all the links you need to Patreon, to Subscribestar, to Rockfin, however you want to support the show. I give you as many options as possible. However you want to do it, I highly recommend you do it. You can even give yourselves a free trial on Subscribestar. Go over there, get yourself one week, dive into all the content, have at it, have a blast, do as you will. I'm cool with it. I just want you to check out this content. Uh, Thank you so much to everybody. It's been almost a year, almost a year that the show has been going, and I could not have done it without all of my supporters, not just the people who support the show financially, uh, all the people who just let me know that they're listening, uh, people who join the conversation in the Telegram group, group, the Mark Clare Show Telegram group. Again, you can find that link over at markclare.com as well. That's not some fancy website that's going to bombard you with a bunch of email sign. I No, none of that. You're just going to get a bunch of links. It's really simple. So go over to markclare.com, find all the links for how you can watch and find the show and support the show. It really do appreciate all of your support. Until next time, friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.